Well, good morning, everyone. It's my chance to say hello. Uh, open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're using the Pew Bible here, it's page number 1014. And today uh, we're going to be starting in uh, verse 13. Uh, if you're visiting with us or if you're checking us out online, a special hello and welcome to everyone. My name's Paul. I'm a minister on staff here. I'm very glad that you're here. Um, earlier this week, just kind of get you an idea as far as what uh, led me to this text, uh, I met with uh, Scott, one of our elders, and we talked about, you know, what is the message that our church, uh, not just Oakland Drive, you know, Little C Church here, but what is the church, Big C, global church, what is the message we're sending to this world? And it got me thinking about uh, how we are to act because everything we do, everything we say, every, the way that we act, this is all sending a message to the world about who our God is and what he's about. And this thought led me to this text that we're going to dive into today, and so I just want to get, uh, to get right into it here. 1 Peter chapter, chapter 1 is starting in verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, con conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, as we seek to dig into this uh, scripture and what it has to say to us this morning, I want to start by making uh, two uh, grammatical observations about this text. Uh, number one, that uh, Peter, who's writing this letter, uh, the apostle of Jesus, he's writing his, to his audience of early Christians, of people who, uh, and he gives them three imperatives, three bossy statements about what they are to do. The Christians of this day, they were living in a time and a place where, at best, the world was indifferent to, towards their message, and at worst, they were often hostile or violent towards, uh, towards Christians. And I would uh, want to say, well, does this sound familiar? But I think we get the indifference part. I think we understand that. But we don't get the violence. We do not live under fear of physical harm because we gather to worship Jesus. So we don't quite understand what that's like. But regardless, this text still has something that's supposed to tell us something today. And so we need to ask ourselves as Christians, how should we order our lives? How should we live as followers of Jesus? And Peter gives these instructions. He's saying, here's how you are to conduct your lives amongst the culture that you find yourself in. And he gives these three commands. And I had no idea when I was writing these words, even just earlier this week, how much more I was going to need to hear them this morning. Uh, that's some of these commands, but here's the question that we're asking. How do we get our message out there? How do we cut through the noise and the nonsense of this world so that we could be noticed in such a way that's going to bring more glory to our God? So the first imperative, the first command that we are told in this passage is to hope. And in this passage, in this context, hope is a verb, it is something that we do. It's not just something that we have. It is something that we do, and we hope by preparing ourselves for kingdom work. It's displayed in our behavior that we are to be self-controlled, or as it's put here, sober-minded. That when the world is running around with their heads on fire, uh, freaking out over everything that's going, going on, we don't. We hope. We place our hope firmly 
and the grace that is to be revealed in Christ Jesus. And this is our testimony to this world. And I don't think that there could be a more appropriate message than this than during a time of a pandemic. Because the media traffics in fear. And I'm talking about all media, social media, Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, I don't care. Pick your favorite. They are all trading on the currency of fear and panic. And we are called to be different. And shouldn't that cut through the noise? Shouldn't that be a message that the world pays attention to? The world says, we're running around on fire looking for an extinguisher, and you guys are just standing there as calm as Hindu cows. What's the deal? And our testimony, our posture in this world should invite a conversation that non-believers, that we can invite them in and share in the hope that we have. Because it's tempting to place our hope in the temporary things of this world. I mean, it drives me absolutely crazy. Every four years, and now it's every two years, uh, without fail, you're going to hear some chucklehead go on the news and tell you about how this is the most important election of our lives. No, it's not. Because every politician, I don't care who they are, they are lobbying for a position that is temporary, that's going to be filled by another politician once they're done with it, no matter who they are, and at least half their constituency is going to hate them. So you want me to bet my life on that noise? No. If we are called to be imitators of Jesus Christ, then why don't we treat our elected officials like Jesus treated Pilate? Pilate went to Jesus and said, I literally hold your life in my hands. And Jesus says, no, you don't. If you have power, it's only because God gave it to you. And my life is in his hands, not yours. So you don't get to threaten my hope. Compared to my king, you're a joke, buddy. You're just playing pretend. And as Christians, we need to hope differently. Another command that we have in this text, which seems to be the opposite of of hope, but we need to give it context, and that is the command to fear. In verse 17, he says, If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. And now in this context, fear does not mean terror. And to illustrate this, uh, I think we all kind of understand what fear means when it comes to parenting, right? Right? I mean, whether you're, you're a parent today or reflecting on your own parents growing up, we're always walking this fine line between uh, trying to make our parents proud and disappointing them. We're always, uh, we're, we fear that. And speaking from my own experience, I never once questioned growing up whether or not my parents loved me. I always had the baseline knowledge that they cared about me, but that knowledge of their love did not stop me from being terrified of disappointing them or crafting my life in such a way as to get their approval. And I always knew that if I didn't live up to the standards that they set for me, that I was going to experience that love in the form of discipline. I was just talking with my mom last night about some of the things that I did in my life and the way that I, the choices that I made. They, yes, they might have made God happy, but I cared more about not making Brenda Funk unhappy. That was the motivation in my life. And we talked about this last week, that discipline is rarely, or I mean never, pleasant but it's a necessary part of our formation as members of God's kingdom. This means that we are to live our lives consciously aware of the authority that God has over them. And while he has the power to smite us, that's not the motivation. It means this, that we do not live our lives with God as an afterthought, like he's some casual or passive observer of our lives. We live our lives recognizing the authority that he has over us. 
And while it's true that his love is unconditional, we realize that sometimes that love is going to be experienced in the form of discipline. And so these are our first two imperatives, to hope and to fear. We place our hope in the grace of Jesus Christ, and we live our lives in reverent fear that acknowledges that there is an all-powerful God of the universe and that he still loves us and cares for us. And the third command, and if you've been following along, you might have noticed that I skipped it, but that third command is to be holy. I think this is the most important one that we need to hear, is to be holy. This is a truth that is a, just a reality of the human condition. And this is unpacked throughout all of the scriptures. You will become like that what you worship. You will become like what you worship. We are beings that are created to worship, and what we choose to worship will shape our lives. So if you are worshiping the one true God, then your life will make sense and it will go well. And if you worship anything else, whether it's your success, your bank account, or your politics, this is what the Bible refers to as idolatry, and it never goes well. Isaiah chapter 44 paints pictures of this, and it's deliberately a little bit comical. Isaiah is calling out to the Israelites because some of them had started to worship false gods. He says, here's what they do. They chop down a tree, and they take a part of that tree, and they form themselves a little totem, and they, it, this is their idol that they're going to worship. And then when they get cold, they take the, what was left after they made their god, and it turns into kindling for a fire. In verse 16 of chapter 44, he said, half of it he burns in the fire, and he warms himself and says, aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the point is clear. That all idols and all those who make idols are ultimately worthless in the sight of God. And they're not worthless because God made them to be worthless. It's because the things that they treasure are worthless. Whatever you treasure, whatever you give your worth to over time is going to reshape your identity. So if this is true, we need to ask ourselves, if we are striving in our lives to faithfully worship God... What should we expect that to look like over time? What effect should that start to have in our lives? What is the measured change that we should expect to see between who we were before and who we are now? And back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, when he has the vision of the throne room of God and the angels are surrounding the throne and they're singing, their words are, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And in the book of Revelation, John also has a throne room vision. And what are they singing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There's a reason we picked the worship songs today. Of all the things they could have chosen to sing about the God of the universe, they could have sang about his justice, his beauty, his power, his love, but they chose to sing about God's holiness. The word that they use to describe the God of this universe is holy, and this is a modifier for all of his characteristics. His love is a holy love. His justice is a holy justice. His righteousness is a holy type of righteousness, and his holiness is what all the followers of God have all been called to imitate. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, in this book of laws and commands for the Israelites, we read, here's the instructions given to the people of God. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy, and I've set you apart from the nations to be my own. 
And this is what Peter is calling us to in this passage, that to pursue God is to pursue holiness. And well, that's great, but what does it mean? That there's a lot of different opinions and definitions out there about what it means to be holy. And I want to offer you a basic understanding of what, biblically, what it means to be holy. And like I said, this is not about perfection. Holiness is to be pure. In other words, it's to be, to be set apart from evil and for God. And this is what it looks like. Growing in holiness and purity means that eventually the gospel message is going to affect the real everyday issues that I deal with in my life. It means I can no longer say everything I want to say. I can no longer watch everything I want to watch. It even comes down to sometimes the clothing choices that I make because everything has been reshaped as far as my values and my priorities. It means that I am no longer the one at the steering wheel of my life. I surrender that control to God. Peter comes back to this notion in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants. Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And when it's translated there, when it says put away, the original Greek has this meaning of disrobing or taking off dirty clothes so that uh, you're shedding off the old and putting on the new. To follow Christ means that I am being changed and those changes are starting to show up in the way that I live my life. And it's tempting to stop at this point, but if we do that, I believe we're going to miss the larger point of this text, that holiness is not just about morality. It's not about good moral behavior. It is about that, but it's not just about that. Holiness is also about mission, that the call to holiness is a call to be distinct from this world, but not isolated. Jesus did not allow his holiness to isolate him from this world, and neither should we. And I see this in Christians all the time. It's called the bunker mentality. That we think that somehow knowing Jesus means that we need to build walls in our lives so that we can only focus on Jesus and keep the world out. And that's not what holiness looks like. Holiness will cause us to reach out to a lost and broken world. Later in this letter, in in 1 Peter, Peter refers to the believers as a holy nation, as a royal priesthood. And you can't be a priesthood and you can't have a holy nation if you've isolated yourselves from the very people that you've been called to be a priest to. Holiness has always involved sacrifice. In the Old Testament, the Jews would sacrifice an unblemished lamb in an act of worship. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says that we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord, which is our spiritual act of worship. Holiness is an invitation to die. We die to ourselves so that we can live for the mission of God in this world. So how are we doing with that? It's uncomfortable to talk about it. I mean, a discussion on holiness requires that I become painfully aware of all the times in my life where I haven't been holy. Before we can rightly pursue holiness, we need to reflect and see just how unholy we are. And, and I heard this in a sermon a while ago that there's three things about, that are roadblocks that keep us from pursuing holiness. And since uh, they spoke to me, I want to see if they're going to uh, speak to us this morning. That there are three, oh, I forgot that one. Okay, so three roadblocks as far as that stop us from pursuing holiness. And the first one is happiness. 
that our happiness will get in the way of our holiness. And I think this is especially controversial in America. I mean, this is built into our DNA, right in the Declaration of Independence, that we have these unalienable rights that to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As if happiness is even close to being the chief end of man. But this is the common theme in our culture today. What is your goal in life? To be satisfied and to be happy to make sure that I get mine. It doesn't mean other people can't get theirs, but I need to get mine first. And that, that's okay. And that thought can be found nowhere in Scripture. God didn't put us here to pursue happiness. He put us here to pursue holiness. He calls his people to be set apart for him. But, you know, happiness is so much easier, so much more fun. Holiness could be a really, that could just be such a buzzkill. And here's just one more preacher telling me, God doesn't want me to be, want me to enjoy anything in life. And I get it. Because when push comes to shove, almost always, I'd rather be happy than holy. But God calls me to holiness. And I have to make the choice every day. And the second thing that keeps us from pursuing holiness is relevance. That the desire this desire to be relevant, uh, relevant, relevant elephant, I just combined those two. Anyways, relevant, there we go. But the desire to be relevant to our times. Uh, There's a professor at Ozark Christian College, uh, Chad Ragsdale. I heard him use this line in the sermon, and it has always stuck with me about how there is no end. It it just, it amazes how Christians twist their lack of holiness into an evangelistic strategy. That somehow we say, well, we need to have a testimony. Some of us have our own battle scars from our wrestling with the world, and so we could talk to non-believers and be like, well, I'm not like all those judgy Christians you might be worrying about. I'm just as messed up as you. I've got the same addictions and hang-ups that you do. We're the same. And there's some truth to that, right? I mean, the gospel is good news for a broken and hurting world. But we have to examine our motivation is our motivation to just blend in with everybody else. Because that's not what holiness looks like. What does the gospel message call us to? To relevance? To be, hey, we're just like you, so don't worry about it. And in our, in our pursuit of relevance, we miss the important point of the gospel, that we are called to be distinct. Our God calls us to be holy. And the third thing that I think causes us to get distracted on the way to holiness, and I think that this will surprise some of us, but the third thing is sincerity. We've been trained, we've been trained very well to avoid hypocrisy at all costs. It ranks just behind judgmentalism as far as the worst of all possible sins. And so we are so determined to defeat hypocrisy that I think we've turned the word holy into an insult. Oh, they're so holier than thou, am I right? I mean, I think it's hard for us to even use this word sometimes without coming across as sarcastic. We flip the parable that Jesus had on the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus tells the story of a Pharisee and tax collector. They go to the temple together, and the Pharisee starts praying very, very loudly so that the entire world would hear them, God, thanks for making me so great. I mean, you nailed it when you made me. And I'm really glad that I'm not like this tax collector over here. And the tax collector just looks to the ground in the corner, beats his chest, and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the lesson is that the tax collector is the one who went home justified in the sight of God. But I think if we were to tell that story in today's church, it might look like this, that the, the tax collector is bragging to God, say, thank you, for not, that I'm not, thank you, God, for not making me like this hypocritical Pharisee. 
I mean, that judgmental piece of trash, thank you for that. And the Pharisee would be the one on his face saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a hypocrite. Hypocrisy can be expressed as self-righteousness. In, in other words, putting on a show to the world of how right we really are when we're actually not. But another form of this sincerity, which I think can get away in our holiness, is this desire that it's really come into to vogue lately here where everyone gets so caught up with authenticity, that we need to be authentic to ourselves. And I think there's some truth to that, that there is some, it always comes down to you and God. You strip away all the noise of this world, it's going to come down to that moment when you are with God face to face, and you're going to see exactly who you are. But there's this phrase that's popular these days. Every time I hear it, it makes me cringe. It's called, my truth. I'm just speaking my truth. Well, it may be your truth, but we live in a real world with a real God, and that real God is the one who holds the eternal truth. So you might want to test your truth against that reality. And this is the sentiment that could get in the way of pursuing holiness, that we're more concerned with being sincere to ourselves than being holy to our God. That I just got to be me. Well, be you in the arms of a loving and just and holy God. I'm not saying that these things can't coincide. I'm saying that there needs to be a shift in our priorities. And in the New Testament, both Paul and Peter tell us to put on Christ, to clothe ourselves with Christ, to be crucified with Christ. And this means that we choose Christ over ourselves, especially when we don't feel like it. So our three imperatives, our three commands that we are to hope, that we are to fear, and we are to be holy. But the word that this entire text actually hinges on is the very first word that we often skip over, therefore. And I had a Bible college professor drill this into my head, so I get to annoy you with it like it annoyed me. But whenever you come across this word, therefore, in the scriptures, you have to ask yourselves, what is it therefore? That these commands to hope and to fear and to be holy, they don't make sense unless we take the entire text that comes before it. So I'm going to read from, uh, once again, from 1 Peter, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. It's a beautiful picture of our hope. 
a living hope that despite all of the trials, all the suffering, all the pain that we go through in this life, we have a living hope and an inheritance that's saved up for us. And this is the thing, is that before we're told what to do, this is actually throughout Scripture, this is the pattern. Before we are encouraged or commanded to do something, we are, before we're told to adjust the way that we're living our lives, most often we are given these commands, it is preceded by a celebration of what Jesus already did. And we mirror this in our uh, church life, don't we? I mean, this is what we do. We gather on Sunday mornings and we come in for instruction and for exhortation or encouragement and then we go out to then live this way. That's why we come to church every week to remind each other and to encourage each other and to instruct one another in in the pursuit of holiness. But I like to use a sports analogy here because I just can't help myself. We come here to celebrate that Jesus already hit the home run and then we go out and we get to trot around the bases. In the book of 1 Peter and other New Testament passages, a phrase that is used to describe Christians, and it's one that I've always, it's always struck me as wrong. It's awkward for me. We're called believers or disciples or followers of Jesus, but the one that sticks out like a sore thumb is saints. It makes me feel awkward because I can't think of any time in my life where I have felt like a saint. But that's what the Bible says I am. And you know why? I'm a saint because I've been made holy. That's literally what this word means. I have been made holy, not because I'm so fantastic. I've been made holy because my God is holy. And he laid down his life for me. So despite all of my sin, my brokenness, and my rebellion against God, I can be made pure. I can be made holy because of his work and not mine. And my response to his work is not to try and earn this gift. It's to pursue holiness. It's to live the new life, the new identity that he gave me by his blood. I shared this earlier in chapter 2 what Peter says, like newborn babies, that's what we're supposed to be like, craving spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up into your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, I love my kids. And I will admit that being a father, becoming a father, and loving my boys has made me understand God in all sorts of new ways. And there really aren't any words to describe the transformation that I experienced when I became a father uh, the first time. I mean, they handed me a baby, and nobody had to tell me how to love it. I mean, they had to tell me how to change a diaper the first time. I had to call the night nurse for that one. I was, I was clueless on that one, but I needed some help with that. But when it came down to the love, I had that down. No instruction, no training. That's my boy. It's my son. And no matter what life throws at me, or what life throws at him, or what he throws in my face, it doesn't matter. It's my boy. I love him. I always will. And I was holding this slimy, this uh, slimy, skinny little alien baby. Didn't matter. I had parent goggles on. It's the cutest thing ever. Just trust me. <laughs> uh, but the same thing happened with my, my two younger uh, boys. I deeply love them and will never stop loving my three children. And one of the great ambitions of my life is to help them mature and grow into godly men. So part of my job every day is to ask myself, what am I teaching them? How can I train them? How can I lead by example? And this is the example that we see in the scriptures. We are called beloved children of God, and our spiritual father has a path for us to grow into the men and the women that he created us to be. 
And this word picture here is like newborn babies, we are to crave milk. A newborn baby doesn't crave Doritos. A newborn baby doesn't cry out for bacon or coffee. A baby wants one thing, and that is their mother's milk. And that milk is what causes the baby to grow. And this is the illustration. The thing that we need to grow is not something that we produce ourselves. It's not manufactured in the human heart. It doesn't come from inside of us. It comes from our Father. So we need to stop looking to ourselves for the solutions and to start looking to God, to desire the things of God above all of the things of this world. Because we have been redeemed by the Lord. We have tasted and we have seen that the Lord is good. So let's put aside all the garbage that this world tells us is just so important so that we can crave the things of God. We cannot produce holiness in our lives by ourselves, but God's Holy Spirit will come alive inside of us and produce something that will break the chains of oppression to a lost and hurting world. We can't do this, but our God can. We worship a holy God, amen? We worship a holy God, amen? Wake up here, all right. So let's, right now we're going to seek his throne and we're going to stand and sing a song of praise to our God. Please stand with us.